After I've been gone for two weeks, I'm really glad to be back again. How many people are here this morning who have never been to Wednesday morning class? One, two, three, four, five. What's what's your name? Mary. Mary, where do you live? Oroville. That's a far way away, isn't it? That way? It's a master pool and then, uh, yeah. Did you come down this morning? Yeah, I came up to the Oh, great, great. It's a beautiful day to be driving back there anyway. Well, thank you for coming. Please come again. Who else is their first time here? What's your name? Hmm? April. Welcome. Who else? Somebody else? Yes, what's your name? Carmen. Where do you live? Oh, good. Everybody's getting to come down to the back country in a nice weather. That's wonderful. Why did you come today of all days, Carmen? I came with my teacher. So, I, have you been here? Do we know each other? We do. I haven't been here in quite a long time. What's your name? It's Marjorie. Oh, I'm, gl- yeah. I'm glad to see you again. Thank you. Thanks so much. I missed it. And I'm glad you came. Who else didn't say here? Yeah. This is the first time I've been in this building. Ah. What's your name? Lowy. Lowy. This is amazing, isn't it? You know, I brought a friend here one day when there wasn't a class happening here. And uh, and I could, she has limited mobility, so we had to go at a time that she could come. But we did make it up here and uh, sat down just inside the door on those two chairs. And I said, I'm sorry you're not here while there's a class going on. And she said, it doesn't matter, you know. She said, you could just come here and sit in this room and be by yourself and sit here and look out the windows. And it would probably count the same. You'd feel better here. That's why I was very happy about that. It's a, a lot, a lot of people did a lot, a lot of committee meetings before they figured out how to build this, down to how the joints and the floor should all come around a tiny little hexagon in the, or a tiny little octagon in the wood in the middle. Is somebody sitting on the top of the middle? But there's a really... And all of these come out from that middle thing. It's really quite amazingly done. Uh, Elta has not been... Elta is my next-door neighbor in Kenfield, and so I brought her today. Welcome. Uh, ah. Catherine and Tim, we're from Atlanta. You're from? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta. Are you out here just for a... That's great. That's great. I'm glad you're here. So that's it. That's us. Oh, you know, I have news for the people who 
our regulars here, you probably are thinking about um, um, Brahmani and, and Ace, who got hurt in that, uh, in that accident four weeks ago, I guess it was, maybe five, five, four, five. Uh, they, and then, could not move back to their house because the fire happened while they were in the hospital and Ace had had his whole pelvis reconstructed and then they were in the hospital and then they couldn't go back home and then they had to stay in Oakland for the last week or so because he was discharged from the hospital after 23 days. He was really happy to get out. And that now they're just back in Santa Rosa in their house and I had an email from her this morning saying we just can't come. We don't have a car, for one thing, because their car was destroyed. But it was especially to tell the group that Ace is fine and we will be back soon. And she wanted to thank you for all your prayers and thinking about them. And so I said I would, so now I did. Um, if Ace was here, he would at this point say, you know, Sylvia, you always are supposed to stop at this point and have people say hello to each other in word and gesture, so they're not just sitting next to each other, unknown people. So uh, make a friend, ready, set, go. Especially if the friend hasn't been here before, then really make conversation. I'm always happy to hear from you. the part of people talking to each other like the best Do you, it's like all of a sudden everybody comes to life it's like I, I, one of the things I will talk to you about this morning is uh, my experience in the last two weeks since I wasn't here the last two weeks the reason why is I was actually here but I was part of the retreat that was happening up at the top of the hill nor was I teaching the retreat. I was a retreatant on that retreat. And it's a kick. It's the best, you know. If you ever thought, start to think about going on retreat, this is the only place to go. First of all, it's beautiful. And it's clean. And it's orderly. And it's quiet. And, you know, if you had to pick a, um, a retreat place just as a balm for the soul in hard times even without teachers, even without practicing, even without 
but we do all those things. We have teachers and practicing and all of that. It's just so good for your heart or your spirit or whatever you want to say to be here because it's quiet, it's beautiful. The, the food is really great. The food is really good. It's, I don't think it's ever been better. It's inventive. You know, serving three meals a day to a uh, hundred people, you have to be inventive. And it is. And accommodating all kinds of people no, no, no tofu, no soy, no this, no that, no garlic. Uh, and they get all their special things. But most of the people eat the food, and it's very good. And the teachings are very good. And uh, it's so quiet because there are no radios and televisions and traffic, and people are not checking their email. You know, it, it's very clear to me that my my phone can be in my suitcase and I don't even feel a pull from it saying open the suitcase and check the mail you know the, maybe the first day you know I could just see what's happening in Washington but you know part of what you begin to see is since you don't move fast if you move fast you, it would go like you could just see what's going on in Washington alright I'll just see if you're not moving fast, you say, well, what if I don't? Um, what, a, what difference could I make anyway? Either it's better or worse, or it's the same. And it'll be the same probably after 10 days. And if it's much worse, we'll hear from it. We'll hear about it because someone will tell us the word. And the fire was still going on. And to think, well, what if the fire? If the fire is coming, they'll let us know. And there's always... Be, I was really working a lot. I want to talk to you more about it because it changed my meditation practice. On the awareness of imperative in the mind that comes with ideas of, I'll do this, I'll do that, I'll do this, frequently arise with an imperative connected to it. Uh, <laughs> What I'm laughing about is like on the mo- I, I learned that lesson a couple of years ago on the most mundane thing. It was a morning I was at home. I was not on retreat, but it was, nothing was around. My my husband was out somewhere. Nobody was coming by. Uh, the radio was not on. Television was not on. Nothing was on. And I fixed myself a breakfast. And I was sitting and eating my breakfast and. It was nice, pleasant, lovely. And my cell phone was over there on the table, just where I was eating, and uh, within reach. And I'm eating away, and I had some thought that about some idea. I don't even remember what the thought was, but it was some idea. And it seemed like an important enough idea, so I had the thought, uh, I have to call Jack and ask him about that. And simultaneously with having the thought, I have to call Jack, uh, I'll call him, and call him and tell him about that. I was reaching out my hand to get the phone, which was right there. And like in the middle of mid-reach, I thought to myself, wait a minute. You want to call Jack, and you can call Jack in five minutes when you finish the breakfast. You don't have to do it now. I need to call Jack. Is wrong. I don't need to call him. I want to call him. And I want to call him after I finish this egg. It's a nothing thing. 
But what I, what I, I, I hadn't realized till this minute that on a lot of things on this retreat I was practicing, wait a minute now, or wait a minute, think it over. And discovering so much in the intermediary moments, the nanosecond, what was propelling. Uh, you know, I'd like to tell him that. Maybe the need is he'll think I'm so clever and I like when he thinks I'm doing something well. I said, that's your ego, Sylvia, you know, whatever it is. I didn't do that whole story at that point. But if I were doing it now, I would. Because what I am really thinking about a lot is the ego-driven sense of need that pushes me around all the time. And when I realize I can do the same things in my life, doesn't mean I'm going to say, all right, let the future arise. You don't get to do that. In between saying whatever, let the future arise, which actually has a little bit of aversion in it, and jumping on it right now, which makes my jumping on it so ego-driven, so important. So I'll tell you more about the retreat. But I want to tell you a couple of news before, right? Because then I'll never... Ah, uh, uh, did we give out flyers or do you all know about the 1440 retreat? Did, we, did I tell you about the 1440 retreat? I was sure I talked. To... Okay, I'm telling again. <laughs> There's a new thing in... Uh, 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 not Santa Cruz, Scotts Valley, just before Santa Cruz, is a place called uh, 1440 Multiversity. And I haven't been there yet, but if you go online and Google it, if you just put 1440, you'll get Multiversity. And some folks with a fair amount of capital, apparently, have built a very beautiful, very luxurious, very new... Um, I don't know, what would you call it to show? It's not actually a retreat center. They have courses also. It's like a, an event center. It's a learning center. Yeah, learning center. And it's got a, it's got a calendar of events like a school. It's more like a school. It's got a calendar of events so that starting last May and continuing into the far future, they hope, are week-long courses, weekend courses, day-long, not so many day-longs, but weekends and week-longs and all kinds of courses, mostly in what you would call humanistic disciplines. So a lot of different yogas and a lot of different movements and a lot of different meditations and a lot of different philosophical explorations. And among the many splendid things that are coming up in their calendar from the 15th to the 17th of December the splendid teaching team of Jashoda Edmonds and Brahmini Liebman who isn't here with AIDS today but is usually and Sylvia Borstein and they have this way of teaching that they've been teaching for 10 years together in different venues where they teach Dharma and Sylvia sits down and talks out some Dharma, gives a talk, gives an explanation, teaches some sitting meditation or some walking meditation. And as a sitting meditation, people do it and ask questions and answers. Then 
Sylvia goes into the class and Brahmini and Jashoda come in the front of the class and they more or less teach the same thing through the body in a yoga practice that is designed to actually echo the same phrases out of the previous teaching so that in my experience when I'm doing a yoga pose and they say something and they say da 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 I think that's funny I just said that and it, they they really have an extraordinary technique of re like translating it into body it's like not translating it into French but translating it into body and uh, the name of the course is Wisdom in Every Cell and we have had the belief that you learn this stuff in every cell and over and over again and not once you hear it it sounds like a really good idea great but yet from my, in my own experience I have to hear it again and again and again and again one of the things I've noticed that's so interesting to me is I'll sometimes say something that I've said a million times like when the mind is clear and balanced the heart's own natural goodwill presents itself I've been saying that for 20 years. And then I'll say it, something, maybe even that, I was seeing to see if it worked right then. And I'll say it, i say, you know, that's really profound. I just got that. I've been saying that for 20 years. But now I first got it, what it meant. You know, you say the same things over and over again because other people said them before. That uh, one's, uh, the most trustworthy source of help for a confused mind is one's own benevolent heart. Huh, I got that. But this is not the first time I said it. Have I been saying it and I didn't get it? No, I got it, but I didn't get it. So the, each time you do it, you get it a little more. And I don't think that we learn Dharma and get changed by it on the minute, or at least that's not my experience. All kinds of stories in the literature of somebody, who, uh, a monk who's walking along and drops their begging bowl and it shatters and completely... They so see the whole fabric of the arising and passing away of suffering that never again are they caught in greed, hatred, and delusion from that one moment. But that didn't happen to me since. And it didn't happen to anybody else that I know, actually. It only happened in suttas a long time ago. So I'm telling you about it because uh, if you want to go for the weekend... Uh, now is a chance to sign up and you have to go to 1440 uh, Multiversity and sign up so if you do, we'll be there and I'm telling you today because I won't be here next week and next week and then I'll be back I won't be here next week and next week because I will be in Europe because this morning God willing it's a very funny thing to say in a Buddhist center uh, my husband as we speak is having his neck brace taken off and we'll be able to go on that trip but we have a trip to Europe when I come back I'll tell you about it if we go if before now between now and next week <laughs> a tile does not fall off the roof it's all contingent Yeah. I just want to add that the yoga is for everyone. It's a very 
gentle practice, and it doesn't mean that you don't also get, have an active way of being gentle or a gentle way of being active. And we love teaching together. We and it's we have such a good time. We've done this more than once, teaching together. Yeah. And, uh, we really look forward to being reunited. It'll be great to see friendly faces. It's really fun to go to to go to a teaching where people uh, where people are really uh, where the teachers are having as good a time as you are. Then yeah, it actually feels good, and we always are. I want to say one more thing before we sit and meditate because I was thinking about everything is something that you learn from. Like I just said about it, begging bowl drops and it breaks, and suddenly you realize something deep dharma that you didn't know. Yesterday in New York City, a man with a truck rode on a bike path that's otherwise a scenic walkway. I'm assuming that most of you saw that or know about that piece of news. And killed eight people. And five of them were friends from um, Argentina who were there on a high school reunion. Another one was a person on holiday from Australia they were in the middle of Stuyvesant High School and one junior high school and two public schools it was mid-afternoon all those schools could have been open there could have been kids in there in the broad daylight it's the most banal of circumstances it's a public it's a street it's like I'm walking on the street in Marseille there's nothing even that you can do as a uh, as a precaution for it again the the police have been saying you know you cannot put um, a big brick stanchion every two feet on every corner in New York I mean you can't do that we have cities all over the world And I was thinking about because, I, and I remembered it just now because I was, I was joking, and I looked over and uh, we smiled at each other because we both knew. I, you know, I'm going next week. Uh, if we haven't been be- here before, you know, every once in a while, when I'm talking about how contingent everything is, and you don't know that uh, in philosophy, what is known as the Kierkegaard joke, and I think what's, why it's called the Kierkegaard joke is that it's already a joke to say, to put Kierkegaard in the word joke in the same sentence because, you know, it's like, you don't think of Kierkegaard as joking around. He was really the first of the looking death in the eye, morbid, not morbid, but bleak um, existential psychologist. And they said about him, this was a joke, that he was leaving a friend's house after visiting. And the friend said, I'll see you next week, because they met every week at that time. And he said, yes, I'll see you next week if, when I leave your house, a tile from your roof does not fall off on my head and kill me. Or, as I step out into the street to get in my carriage, the horse does not stampede and the wagon run over me. In other words, saying... A million things can happen before. My mother-in-law used to say, so mother, are you coming for lunch this when, for, on Sunday, you said? 
So we'll see. We'll see. God willing, we'll see. And I think to myself, that's so annoying. Because, <laughs> you know, I don't know whether to shop or not shop. Or what she used to say, her thing was, we should live and be well, I'll be there. But really, we should live and be well, then I'll be there. That's the same as the Kierkegaard joke. It's, it's, you know, she, maybe she's right up there with the Kierkegaard. I, I didn't find it funny. But, but I thought about that. You know what else came to my mind as I thought about it? When there was that fire, the fire two weeks ago in uh, Coffee Park, and someone sent me a, um, an email with a picture of probably Coffee Park. They didn't say where it was. Totally, totally, completely devastated. It looked like a post-apocalyptic scene. And in one little corner of one street, there were like five houses standing. Like everything was obliterated. And these five houses are standing. And the spark must have just jumped over those houses. And so whoever sent it to me did not say anything, but it, uh, the one sentence they wrote is, this is a def- definition of contingency. You know, everything depends on, on the moment of, could be this way, that way, and this way, that way. And when you think about that, you think, oh, you never know. You go out of your house, and tile off the roof, a carriage run amok, a crazed guy with a car on a bike path, and we do that every day. We go out as if it's going to be all right. And 99% of the time it's all right. Sometimes it's not. And how to live in that kind of an, with that kind of an awareness, not to become morbid or frightened, but this, the, um, the psalm line is, this is the day that, that God has made. Let us rejoice and be happy in it. This is the only day we have today. Never mind about the, the the religious part of it. But how to make how to in full knowledge that it might be the last day, how do we live this day? It really perks you up, you know. That, no, no, I mean it does. Because you say, Well, I'm gonna give up and you know, I feel bummed out, so I'll just bum everybody else out all day. But you know, when you realize you have no time to lose. My mother, when I was an adolescent and I'd get in a bummed out day like adolescents do and be slamming this door or that door gratuitously, and she'd go by me at some point she'd say quietly, you know, Sylvia, this is the only one time that you're going to have today. Then she'd go on about her business. Then I'd think, whoa. (laughs) And my mother is dead more than 50 years, and I remember you know, that would probably have big teaching. And I loved her a lot. Anyway, I think I said everything that I want to say before we sit. Okay. What I did on my sitting, so I'll tell it to you, so you might want to try it. You could do anything you want in this half hour or so of sitting quietly. You could... Well, let's do this. Let's let's um, let's practice together. And at any point that you think to yourself, "I like what I'm doing," I'm disconnecting. I'm just going to do what I do. Sit in a way that's comfortable.
let the breath come in and out of you quite easily. For a moment, notice that you don't have to remember to breathe. If you sit quite still, just aware of your body sitting. If you can feel the whole of your body sitting. You'll notice that it fills with air and empties with air and fills with air and empties with air. You don't have to do a thing about it. Why don't I stay quiet for five minutes and see if we can rest with your attention in the body and just what's happening with it. Feel where you're sitting, feel your feet on the floor, feel your back against the chair, feel your body get bigger and then smaller down. Then I'll give you two alternative suggestions and you can do A or B.
as he continued to sit, of course, feeling yourself as your body, sitting wherever it is, breath filling and emptying. Including, of course, sounds around in the room, sounds inside your body, sounds in the room. Also, the, the, the temperature of the room, the feeling of the air around you. You know, if I feel with all the faculties of my body, smelling and hearing and feeling, and it's not much to taste as we sit, but feeling the pressure of my chair against my back and my bottom, Since I'm pretty comfortable and I'm not hungry and nothing hurts me, the mind that I feel is pretty relaxed. I hope yours is too. But bringing the attention to one breath or after another is a particular technique to help steady the mind. And in case your mind's been consumed with some worry that's going on in the world, bringing it explicitly to something that's neutral, not a worry, like the breath coming in and out and in and out, is a way of stabilizing it. So you might want to keep on with that. When I sit, I remind myself from time to time, may I meet this moment fully. And may I meet it as a friend. Meeting it fully means really being awake in it, not somnolent. Alert. You could just decide to sit as awake and relaxed as you could possibly be. I say to myself, tranquil and alert. Tranquil and alert. We'll sit that way for another 15 minutes, I think. What I particularly was doing on my own retreat was sitting this way and really being at, at, uh, 
at ease about the arising and passing away of thoughts. Stray thoughts arise and pass away, who knows why. This thought, that thought. What I was being attentive to was thoughts that had a negative valence about it, out of the, out of the blue somehow, a thought of something that I didn't like or someone that I didn't like or something that annoyed me or something about me that annoyed me. I was really particularly attentive to that because then I'd stop. You feel that the mind goes, ah, like it trips a tripwire. And then I'd just think it again, think it again. They're really like soothingly I don't actually say metaphrases, my, my mind relaxes, but it's just say, oh, okay. Usually if I can dwell on that thought, the information behind the thought, the reason that a negative thought comes up is that it's manufactured and propelled by all the programming that's happened in the past. And I see some of the programming. Sometimes I say, oh, that's my mother's idea. I don't have to do that anymore. Okay, that's because I had that interchange with so-and-so. That's a long time ago. My own sense and my own belief, therefore, is that systematically we really do purify the heart of negative elements and feel lighter. So we'll just sit for a while more and then we'll talk about it.
If at any time your mind gets sleepy or foggy, take a deep breath and then for the next ten breaths, follow the breath in and out. Count it on your fingers. Take deep breaths in and out for ten breaths. So you oxygenate your body and you really sharpen up your attention and then relax again and just feel each moment. Before I ring the bell and we come back together as a group, we have made it a practice of mentioning people that we're thinking about far and near in um, special circumstance. When I talked to my friend Rachel in New York last night, who was going to have a CAT scan this morning for her brain tumor, she said she really liked the idea that Spirit Rock was thinking about her and keeping her in mind and made her feel good. She was glad to know I would say her name again. So whose name or names do you want to say this morning?
Chuck Blessing, who was in the last stages of pancreatic cancer, an extraordinary, kind soul, successful actor, just loving dad, and um, incredible husband. And I just wanted to say a prayer for his gentle passing. survivor and was just diagnosed with breast cancer. And as we sit here, she is moving forward and back to the industries of the other women. All of the people who were displaced by the fire and all of the people who have taken in people because of the fire and all of the first responders and everyone everywhere who knows that taking care of people is what makes you feel most worthwhile and most good. May all beings everywhere befriend and care for each other. Everybody here is out of their house. Everybody's, their house is okay. I just wanted to tell a little story about the residence at Friends' house up in San Well, stand up so people can hear. Oh, here, come, here comes a... a And uh, they were all evacuated to various locations. Um, my mother and many of the residents were uh, evacuated to a place in Napa called the Meadows. They were greeted and cared for and loved up. Uh, the staff from Friends House accompanied them, and it was just so wonderful, and they were cheerful. And uh, after they got back from Friends' house, uh, I learned that they had earned the nickname 
the meadow larks. I think that you told me about your mother on a previous uh, ambulance trip. You have to tell the people, or I will tell the people that your mother is 99 years yeah. old. So, on, on, and when we talked about that on the day that she was getting evacuated, you said she'll be all right because on her last trip where she had to leave her apartment by ambulance to go to the hospital for some precipitous thing, on the way there, she apparently said, well, this is a new kind of adventure. So anybody who does that in an ambulance can probably get evacuated to a, um, another facility. Who also drove cross-country after her 90th birthday with her now uh, deceased husband. But at the time, he was two years older than she, and the two of them, over 90, drove from the East Coast to the West Coast to be able to settle down near Marty. Wow. <laughs> you know, it's a, it's a really, it, it makes you feel good when you hear a story about someone did kindness or someone did heroism. Someone did something that you would hope that you would have been able to do. Uh, I was thinking about that just this morning because I went to um, I went to I went to the movies yesterday and I saw uh, Marshall. How many people saw Marshall? Nobody. It's showing in the Raphael. Uh, I've forgotten the name of the remarkable man who plays Thurgood Marshall. He was in another... Hmm? No. He has an unusual first name and I, and I didn't have my pen with me. Somebody with a cell phone can look that up. Uh, who plays the part of Marshall in Marshall? Was Her- it Idris Elba? Hmm? Idris Elba? No. Anyway, he plays Thurgood Marshall. Thurgood Marshall, if you don't know, was the first African-American uh, justice on the Supreme Court. He's also uh, the man who uh, argued the case, Brown versus the state of... Hmm? Brown versus the Board of Education that uh, got the schools desegregated. He also, at the time that this movie takes place, you get to hear that uh, he's a lawyer with the NAACP. And in fact, he's the only lawyer in the NAACP at that time. And uh, it, it's, a, it's a really extraordinary movie. It's very well done. I'm sure it's an actual case. Very well done. Very upsetting to see uh, for a variety of reasons because the movie... It doesn't tell what year, but it would have been about 1950. It's before he went on to argue. He argued 32 cases of civil rights actions uh, in uh, in front of the Supreme Court and only lost three of them. Um, he's a youngish man in this movie, and he's defending a man who's accused of... Uh, 
raping the uh, of a African American man who's working in a mansion in uh, oh, uh, someplace in Connecticut, uh, an elegant city in Connecticut. So things like country clubs and um, figure prominently in it. And it touched me in all kinds of ways. He, uh, I didn't think I'd say so much about it, but I realized that it has to do with um, what I really want to talk about, and I'll come back to Marshall, leaving that in the air, so I put it in a framework, is I decided that I have four more times to be here today and three more in this calendar year. Then we'll make up about next calendar year what's happening. And I thought, well, let's do something formal, Sylvia, so it's not just what are you thinking about out of the air when you're here. And I decided I'd like to do the uh, Eightfold Path and talk about all the path parts. Well, we don't have eight weeks, we only have four weeks. And I thought, all right, we'll do two a week. And the really reason I wanted to do this is I wanted to, I, it's not because the two part of the Eightfold Path is wise understanding or what they traditionally call right understanding or right view and uh, wise um, um, wise um, aspiration wise resolve uh, is because uh, really it has to do with my own practice on this last retreat of staying with which I explained to you while we were sitting. Uh, every time an, uh, a, a, a thought would go in my mind about which I could sense the slightest negativity as, you know, the mind's relaxed, 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 relaxed. And every moment that a new mind moment comes up, it comes up usually tinged with a hint of pleasant or unpleasant that the sutta is all say pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Come where the sun is not going to be in your eyes. I'm looking at you, and it's going to be so uncomfortable. Come up here, there's two seats. No sun and eyes. <laughs> we tell people on retreat, if you sit next to somebody who snores, make the best of it. That to sit next to somebody who's coughing too loud, make the best of it. The sun is in your eyes. Move. <laughs> now come over here. There's two seats. Or put them somewhere else. There you go. Here's one right up here. And one right up here over next to Susan. There you go. All right. There you go. Um, Mary, you also have too much Son, Mary, uh, maybe I forgot your name. Yeah. Are you Mary? Who are you? Carmen. I should have remembered that. I had a little mnemonic for remembering. The sun is creeping up to you, Carmen. Okay. okay. That I, I was thinking about uh, prejudices. That's how it came. That uh, every time, if I if I thought about come, I thought about so and so, and I think ah, and I feel a little bit of a ah in my mind. I don't like that. It'd be much better to have a mind where anybody could march into my mind, and I could say, "Oh, look who's here." That would be great. But a certain number of people march into my mind, and the mind says, "Ah, 
You know, and it's and if I think to myself, why does it do that? It's got to have some little story connected. So when I would be sitting and something would come up, the I said, wait a minute. You know, and it's not a consequential thing, but I'm on retreat. I have all the time in the world. And I just sit there. And then it's like a scroll unfolds. Once upon a time, this person said this or that. Then they interrupted you in a conference. Then they said something else. Then you didn't like the car they drove. You thought it was a show-off car. Or like... I mean, the mind is really... It's, it's unremitting. I mean, it, it keeps a file on everything. And we just whiz over and say, oh, that person, eh. But, you know, that person, eh, it's got a lot of stuff. So I'm looking about, and I've got nothing else to do, so I sit there. And then when I find it, and, I, and the mind's relaxed, and I could think about that person, and my mind didn't go, oh, I think about, look at that. I just cleaned up a little, I erased a little piece of mental stuff. That's nice. So that's what I was doing. So then I think about, how are we going to come around to this? Uh, uh, like people I don't, people I just, who never would be missed. And the, them, you know, that I, you know, I don't actively not like them. But uh, I know what connected me to this. I had, I had a phone call yesterday afternoon uh, from a good friend of mine in another state. And we haven't talked in a long time, so we're talking and talking. And she's a writer, and she's written all kinds of books. She writes a lot of books for uh, young adults. Uh, and, oh, I brought you her book to show, because I've mentioned it so many times. Whoops. I'll pass it around, too. Thanks, if you bring that book out of the cupcakes. Like, <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Well, good as new. Okay. Um, this is a book by my friend, uh, my friends, uh, Gay Block and Malka Draka. And uh, Gay is a, is a photographer, and Malka is a, um, a writer. And together, they had a project, and all of these big pictures are people that they interviewed in uh, Europe who had been in a variety of countries who had been rescuers, had been uh, named as um, the noble, um, uh, the righteous among the nations. And they are named, there are these plaques as a, a memorial at uh, the Holocaust Museum in Israel, the righteous among the nations. These are actually people who took people in and hid them. And they're, they're photo essays and uh, pictures of of each of them and their children. Why don't I just, uh, Marsha, I'll give it to you and just people can flick through it as we hear. And I remember when she told me about it a while ago, it's not a new book, that uh, she and Gay had visited all these people and uh, they each had different stories and most of them said, well, you know, I didn't have it. Some of them were married to Jews. Some of them said, well, I didn't have any particular love for the Jews, but I couldn't stand what they were doing to them. And uh, some of them said, one of them said, well, you know, I always thought Jewish women were so pretty. And they had a variety of reasons, but they weren't all noble. Um, but what they all said, and they took tremendous uh, risks by doing this. 
And what these two interviewers did with them, they took everybody's story, they, they actually tape recorded it, and it's written just as they spoke it. And it's really extraordinary to read. Um, we built a false wall in the attic, and my husband's colleague at work uh, was staying up there. But then his brother came, and then the brother's wife came, and then they knew some other people, and we had 37 people sleeping in the attic. And it was hard to bring in enough food to bring up to them because the neighbors would see me carrying in too many shopping bags and people were informing on everybody else, which is a whole other story. People who lived next door to other people forever and seemed friendly suddenly became not that all. Anyway, uh, one of the things that becomes, one of the prime reasons that that book is so interesting to me is that uh, they asked each of these rescuers why at the peril of your child life and the peril of your family's life and your children, why when these people came to your door did you, not turn, did you take them in? And they pretty much all said variations of, I couldn't not. And one of the things that I have been thinking about is what designates a person, what makes a person that they can't not do it, that they can't stand the idea of not doing it. Uh, because other people didn't do it, and other people informed. So, what, you know, it's just one of those. Anyway, so here's this story about, I guess I was thinking about, why do we like, why does it pick up the heart to see people who take tremendous risks. You see Thurgood Marshall in this um, movie, and there's every possible effort made in this very segregated, very um, castified town to not, to, uh, a man is in jail for uh, attempted rape. The woman is alive, has accused him of rape. And in a complicated circumstance. And uh, it turns out that it wasn't. And he, and against all odds, at the very end, the jury, who's a jury of 12 European people, vote not guilty. And you can't believe that it's going to come out that way. Really, it's amazing. And uh, it's not it's not saccharine. It's really it's really what happened, and it's because of the doggedness of the Thurgood Marshall character, who is not allowed to present the case in court because they they do everything to get him not to try it. Because he's not uh, he hasn't passed the Connecticut bar, so he has to be invited to be on the bar for this particular case, and somebody pushes this kind of timid and not so uh, bumbly kind of a guy uh, to, uh, you have to do it, it's your, your job, you're going to do it. His brother, the, the brother of the bumbly, says, you're on the bar, you're going to do it. He says, why me? He says, anyway, forever, I forget even why me. But this guy, who turns out to be one of the heroes with Thurgood Marshall, is a kind of... Um, short and fat and uh, bumbly and clumsy uh, man whose name is Sam Friedman. So he's a Jew. 
and it involves also the anti-Semitism in the Connecticut towns where there was a great deal of anti-Semitism before and during the war and after the war. And he turns out to be a hero. And it changes his life. Sam Friedman goes on to do a whole life of work in civil justice in, in Connecticut. And Thurgood Marshall goes on to be the, on the Supreme Court. But there's every move to block them. The judge says, no, I, I won't admit him to the bar. You have to argue the case. So he said, uh, okay, we'll both be then. And he said, no, he can't say anything. You have to be the only person who gets up and says anything. So here's the Thurgood Marshall character who's writing him the answers so in a, and telling him what to say. And it's really done so well. Really, don't miss it. It didn't have a big flamboyant thing. It makes you feel good. And I think it makes you feel good because finally... You begin to see that in desperate situations, which are beyond recognized, I mean, this is the United States in mid-century, where there are African Americans fighting in the fighting in the very war that we're involved in, uh, the war against this kind of tyranny, against freedom, who can't go in a courtroom or in a public toilet. So you see that a little bit of, you know, a few dedicated people can change the world. I think that's why I felt buoyed up. And I guess this was the, the, the connection to Malka that I wanted to tell you. So I was talking to Malka yesterday afternoon. She said, I'm writing a book about can people change their mind? Because in the movie, the judge changes his mind. You can see the moment when he suddenly gets it and I'm doing the wrong thing, and he changes it. And you just, there's like a beat where he's hanging, and he says, no, objections to saying, but it stays in the record. So he's backed up in the record, which he would have done a half hour before, and, he, and you see him thinking, he said, no, that stays in the record, and then the whole thing changes from then on. So I'm talking to Malcolm, and she says, I'm writing a book now. Uh, I've been interviewing Republicans. She says, I've been interviewing Republicans. Uh, I had turned her on to a book that I brought and showed you the book called um, Strangers in Their Own Land. Do you remember I brought that a few weeks ago? Allie Hochschild, who went all over the South and interviewed people and said, they're very, very, very nice, all these people. They're nice. They have dinner with them. They couldn't be nicer. And they say, no, he's our boy, you know, we're voting for him. Because they have this E-Day fix, they don't change their mind. So the question is, what changes people's minds? She said to me, do you think people really change their minds? And uh, uh, this was also about having a view. So I, we were talking about, the, uh, she was saying, you know, that we it's become so polarized that it's the Dems against the Republicans, you know, that, he says, can, can you change people's minds, do you really think? So she said, I'm writing this book about uh, interviews that I've done with 20 upstanding people that I admire. Uh, they're physicians, they're lawyers, they're dentists, they're uh, uh, heads of big charitable organizations, they're heads of the Red Cross or whatever it is, so you have a bunch of things. 
nice people who vote Republican. I said, that'd be a good, be good title for the book, Nice Republicans. Uh, because I said, you know, the truth is that even though people in my husband's family who are his first cousins and their wives and I've known for 60 years and I love as my own family also vote differently from me. And they're nice people. They go on missions to repair spina bifida in other countries and they do good things and they donate money and they raise their children right and they're kind and they vote Republican. It's like I can't get it. So I don't ask. You know, we, don't, we also have an understanding we don't talk about it. I also realize I'm shaped by a book that I read some years ago by Tom Hartman, who's a commentator on um, Democracy Now! and writes very, very super progressive books. And he really talks about the ideology behind progressive and, the ide- and liberal and the ideology behind the conservative. And he makes the point, or at least it is his point, that one of them is, you know, survival of the fittest. If I can get the most, I should keep the most. And the other is a more, uh, you got to take care of everybody. And just as a mother would give her life to support her only charges. So from that comes out that the Democratic, they are good. And the other people, they are every man for himself. Maybe, maybe, but that's truly a oversimplification. I knew people years ago. Da, 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 da. Everybody knew a person. So do we knew? Do we know really people, or do we know stereotypes? And he was Malka who said. So she, I said that sounds like a great book. Nice Republicans. She said anybody's going to change their mind or be interested in it. I said I don't know. She said, well, so we're talking about can you change your mind? That's all, all part of what I was thinking about here. So when I told you before about on retreat, one after another, I'd find my mind snag on this or that person. And then I'd say, wait a minute, why did it snag that? Perfectly nice person, what's the matter? And then you say, oh yeah, but they once said this, and they once did that, and besides this, and anyway, I envy them about that. And uh, whatever it is, like little things that they didn't even do, uh, but that maybe their children did excessively well in school. <laughs> and never had any emotional problems. <laughs> Don't you know people like that? They just sail through. They do everything perfect. They never take a semester off to find themselves. or <laughs> Like in the old days, nobody figured they were lost. They just continued on. People that you envy for some reason. <laughs> so, you know, how to uh, how to fix it so that my mind would really be uh, as delighted if anybody showed up as anybody else, because I'm the only person who suffers if it isn't. Like, oh, I'm so delighted that you are here. And here comes somebody else, not crazy about them. But they're here, you know? I think the secret of it 
I don't like everybody the same, you know. <laughs> but not to have antipathy, that's it. That's it. I have friends that I love, uh, that I visit in another city, so it's none of you, right? Uh, who have relatives, all their children and grandchildren, who are just, they speak loud. They're native New Yorkers, as I am. New Yorkers speak very loud. I think they're used to trying to speak over the din of the subways or something. So they shout a lot. I don't know what it is. But, uh, so when I go there, I don't like to go there so much because everybody speaks. That, that is not true. Too loud of a volume for me. It's not their problem. It's my problem. But I love them. And I just don't stay so long or I stay as long as I can. I mean, they don't like everybody, but to not have any aversion, may I be free of enmity and danger. This is the whole point that I'm trying to make. A wise understanding is if I were free of enmity, doesn't mean I should, you know, walk in difficult neighborhoods in the middle of the night. Uh, it doesn't mean be improvident. It doesn't mean don't think. But but not to have enmity about it. Uh, if I were free of enmity, then my mind would really be filled with nothing but loving kindness and peace. Because enmity is you have to remember who you're mad at. You know, that because you have to be on the lookout and say this is a good one this is not a good one this is a good one not a good one if my mind were really relaxed and it was not losing any of its real estate to some old habit I could live in a perfectly peaceful blessing mind and I would be the happiest person in the world so I wouldn't have to worry about anything I mean it doesn't mean you don't watch if there's traffic when you step in the street you know you watch that but If I were free of enmity, if I had the sort of mind that was so totally relaxed with everybody, that would mean that I could see clearly all the time and choose wisely. So that, um, what, 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 what happened? What, it, the, the millions of things. I've been home for a week and I watch that, I hope it lasts. Always, I, when I go on retreat and I come home, my mind is a little slowed down. So any one of my... I have a very large family, and uh, for which I'm very, very grateful. But often you say something to somebody, and what comes back, they say something, maybe they don't say it the best, or they say it with an edge, or the answer that they say is a little snippy, or it's not the one you want to hear. hear. And there are a million things that you could answer back, including snippy back, or commenting on the snippy, or changing what they said, or disagreeing what they said, or say, oh, I'm so really disappointed that you didn't do X while I said I was gone. All of which are unnecessary. It's like giving a broadcast of my mind state relative to them that they didn't ask for. And it doesn't do any good. Like I really was thinking about what does it mean wise speech? Wise speech is you say something when it's worthwhile, when it's going to further the cause. 
And, I, and if I'm really careful when I'm home, you could try this for the way. I'll give you the instructions right away. Because if just before I say everything, I, I think to myself, you know that little acronym, WAIT, W-A-I-T, why am I talking? You know, that, that there's always a little something. You know, I want them to think how smart I am, how interesting. I want to covertly telegraph to them how annoyed I am that they didn't call the pest control or that they forgot to have the trash picked up or, you know, whatever it is. They don't have to know. I can call the pest control. I can have the garbage picked up. It's, it's you know, really, it, it is that kind of awareness is the cause of scrupulous behavior. And the scrupulous behavior is the cause of happiness. It's the cause of the bliss of blamelessness. That's what I think. I was thinking about um, talking about wise wise, uh, understanding and wise aspiration because really the understanding is is that making a separation between oneself and everything else is the cause of suffering. Enmity is the cause of suffering. Any, like the slightest thing other than love and compassion and mudita and goodwill, everything else divides the world. And all those patience, also I would put in patience and gratitude and tell me some more paramis generosity they're things that connect you to the world patience, generosity, gratitude compassion consoling uh, caretaking they connect you to people and all the uh, 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 hesitations make a world that's fractured of connections otherwise you become one with the whole world and you have no worries because you're living in a, in a, in a completely safe place and your heart is free to express itself in its most full way of loving and appreciating and being compassionate there couldn't be a better way to live so those two things which I started study Buddhism 40 years ago, 41 who knew that was kind of boring, wise understanding and wise aspiration. What would I understand? That's not, you know, that it's not a cosmology that uh, the world began in such a way or will end in such a way. It's not that that I understand. Um, I don't believe the mythology of Buddhism. I mean, I think there was a Buddha, but I think the myth part of the stories don't resonate with me. For some people they do, which is great. Uh, but really to have uh, somehow um, be transformed into wanting to be careful because it, it becomes so pleasant if I am really careful I can have what the Buddha called the, the sorry about that the bliss it's the earring huh? oh I'm sorry I'm sorry Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, 
So I'm... I'm <laughs> I was about to say I'm jeopardizing all of you. I'm deputizing all of you. The next time I do that, tell me. Um, it's like sometimes people come up at the end of a time and they say, I'm sure what you said was good, but I didn't hear it. So you have to tell me earlier. Um, that wasn't so nice to say. Oh, I feel bad that I said that. I cast aspersions on somebody that wasn't good. Okay. All right, we let it go. Uh, but that becomes so clear that wise aspiration that goes with wise understanding. Because what that means is, that, is there is a path for peace. You could go around the world as a peaceful person. How, how many people read Peace Pilgrim? Remember Peace Pilgrim? I have a bunch of books of Peace Pilgrim. Maybe I should bring them. I, had, I once bought boxes of them for people to buy. There was a woman who oh, must be in the 80s now. Well, maybe that's why. I don't even remember what her name is. But she had a, 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 a practice of wanting to teach peace. And she said you have to do it through trust. So she took it upon herself to walk back and forth from the West Coast to the East Coast and back. You don't remember this? She wore a sweatsuit that said peace on the back. And she carried nothing but a comb and a toothbrush with her. And she depended entirely on people picking her up and saying, do you want a lift? Where are you going? Do you need a place to stay over? And she'd say, um, I'm organizing for peace. I'm just showing people that you can go out in the world on, you know, not all guarded up. Have a toothbrush and a comb. And that's all. And she went back and forth, made a couple of walks across the country. She didn't walk that much. People picked her up and drove her. I think she finally died in some in a traffic accident, in, a, in, a, in an automobile accident, in a car in which she was traveling. But it was enough for her to teach, become very well known. And you want some books? I have them in a, in a box. I know I'll bring a box. And people want them. You can. Um, we'll see what the price is. They can't be very much. But uh, but her her idea was that if you go out unguarded and unarmed, people will take care of you because you're not a threat. If I completely have love in my heart, she'd meet some really um, distressed people who you'd want to say, you know, let's move on. But they didn't frighten her. She really could talk to some very disturbed people and talk them down. I want to come back because we have enough time to change the mind, but I wanted wanted to put it in the form of a question. Or... The business of changing your mind, because I think it's different to say I change my mind or I change my opinion. Um, The Tricycle Magazine, which is now no longer a print magazine, but they're online used to sponsor every year a Change Your Mind Day on the Village Green or in Central Park or somewhere in New York. And it was Change Your Mind Day. And uh, I don't think you, they meant change your opinion, just change your mind. Uh, so when I wrote my first book, which was It's Easier Than You Think, uh, I did not write that title. 
I proposed that the book be called I Changed My Mind. Because even then, it was 20 years ago. But I felt that my mind had been significantly changed by what I'd learned and was practicing. So I submitted a number of alternative topics. Among them, I changed my mind. I thought that was the most clever one. Uh, because it's a double entendre in a certain way. But uh, that's exactly why they didn't want it. They said, nobody will going to know what your book is about. They'll say, what's your book? And you say, I changed my mind. They say, it's all right, so what is it actually? <laughs> changed my mind. I had another problem with another book. Uh, somebody asked me on a, on a phone interview because the new book was coming out and we were talking about this and that in the new book and he said, oh, what's the name? And I said, pay attention for goodness sake. He said, well, what, what do you mean? What's the name of it? I said, well, wait a minute. What I mean is, <laughs> excuse me, I meant that the name of my book is pay attention for goodness sake because otherwise it sounds like it's cold. But they didn't want to do it. They said, nobody will know what it means, so we're going to call it, it's easier than you think, the Buddhist way to happiness. So the Buddhist way to happiness is good enough. I like that. But it's easier than you think. They, they chose that. The book is the best-selling of all my books. It was on the best-seller list. Of, it was at the top of the San Francisco best-seller list for six months. And I think it's a lie. It's not easier than you think. I think it's harder than you can imagine. And, uh, and, I, and I don't feel good about you know, having gone along with that. But, I mean, the marketing was great. They said, listen, if you put the words um, easy, it's easier, it's easier than you think. Easier in happiness and faster. If we could have said the 10 free, easy, safe ways to happiness, that would have really sold more books because those are all the words. But... I was trying to think about what I have changed my mind about. I, uh, even before I heard from Malka that she was interviewing nice Republicans, I was thinking of the nice Republicans I have known in my life and also uh, these various cousins who are in my family and I live with who are decent people, living decent lives, being helpful in the community. We don't, talk uh, politics because it wouldn't enhance a Thanksgiving meal to be discussing. But I like them, I trust them, they care about me. But I began to think about other people that I have met that I admired, and then it's too long of a story, but a couple of stories, but halfway through the story I admire this person too much. So much, and then find out they voted for Gary Barry Goldwater. How could that have happened? And my mind goes ding, 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 ding. You know, like a pinball machine goes tilt, wrong, wrong. But you know, so I so I started to think about: um, Do we really change our? Who do I know that really changed their mind? I remember reading a book by Christopher Hitchens called. Hitch 22, as in like Catch 22, Hitch 22. He was a wonderful writer, Christopher Hitchens. He's dead now. 
He's a wonderful writer and was a, kind of a columnist and an essayist, kind of a person who writes for the Atlantic or the Nation or commentary or one of those intellectual kinds of magazines. Very good writer. Interesting person. I, I had the book on tape. It was a lot of tapes. And he was wonderful to listen to because he's British and they always sound so smart anyway, just to begin with, <laughs> without even saying anything. But, uh, and he started out as a student at uh, Oxford or Cambridge and very, um, uh, very much on the progressive end of politics and head of the Student Socialist Union and uh, organizing socialist debates and all of that. And I'm reading along, reading along, and at some point he comes to the United States, and at some point he marries, has a family, lives here, and is having all his ideas. And then, suddenly, he changes, and he becomes uh, along with the neoconservatives. Like he has a moment of shuffling his whole re-understanding and comes out as exactly the kind of belief systems that I don't have. And I thought I heard wrong. First of all, I had it on a book on tape. And then I bought the book because I saw it in a bookstore, in a used bookstore. So I was reading along. So then I, I heard it on the tape. And I went home and I read it in the book. And then I went over it and over it and over it to find the place where he went from the first Christopher to the second Christopher. Because I couldn't find, I think one, something must have happened, like, on the road to Damascus for him to change his whole mind from A to B. You know? And I never actually found, there wasn't one day that he seems to have gotten up and said, oh, that's it. But now that I'm telling you, maybe I'll go back and look because he was on the way other side and he stayed there. So I thought he changed his mind. Look at that. This cousin, I hope he doesn't listen to the tape, my husband's cousin, <coughs> Grew up not so far from where I lived. I knew that his his uh, father was an immigrant from Eastern Europe and uh, uh, worked in the garment district. He wasn't uh, he was not like my grandfather's working in factories and actually sewing clothing. Uh, he was an uh, an importer of uh, men's underwear, actually. And he became relatively middle class from men. But still, you know, I thought, how could a son of an immigrant underwear importer become a Republican? I couldn't figure that out. I still can't figure it out. But I said, there's something missing in me. I have to figure this out. So I read The Conscience of a Conservative by Jeff Flake. You may have heard Jeff Flake on television couple of times, Jeff Flake just wrote this book, A Rejection of Destructive Politics and a Return to Principle. It's not a big book. You can read it in a couple of days. But you'll see I have it, um, have it all underlined. He says some very important things. He said, I am not for trade barriers. We need to have trade. We need to have NAFTA. We need to have trade with Canada. We need to have time in Mexico, and we need to have to have equitable rules, and we don't need a wall, and we don't need Donald Trump. And, but, you know, I, in my fiscal belief system, the debt, the this and that, things that Republicans talk about a lot, 
I am a Republican, but I'm not going to run anymore. I'm not going to run in the next election because I want to work differently. And, of course, he got maligned right away. I see he's not running because he's not going to win, which may be true. Worst news. Anyway, so I read that. Then I am in the middle of reading... I forgot the name of the man who wrote it. It's a book called Before I Wake. Uh, Before I Wake. Oh, Eric Erickson is the guy that wrote it. Eric Erickson is not an elected official. He's a uh, 42-year-old blogger and political commentator. You can read his newsletter. Um... He's mid-40s, his wife also mid-40s. They both, in the last couple of years, have developed very serious physical illnesses uh, that are really life-threatening, and he nearly died. And they have young children. They have an 8-year-old and an 11-year-old. And the before you wake is, of course, if I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. He said, you know, I, I could die any minute, and my wife as well. And I want my children to know why I have the politics I have and what, I, you know, what got me to where I am. Uh, so I'm writing the story of my, how I grew up. Just as, it's a, sort of a living will. Write to them now, because you never know. And actually, I'm halfway through the book, and there's um, and I wanted to finish it by this morning but I didn't quite do it what I can see is so far all the things he's described in his life quite self-relevatory about things he's done that he's regretted that have caused him to feel that anything other than ethics is not right and that he can't be uh, high-handed about it and uh, being uh, Oh, uh, uh, what do you call it? Arrogant about how great you are isn't going to do either. One of his friends, after he had been particularly bossy about making new rules in his college, he was either the vice president or the president of the student body. He wanted to firm it up. And one of his friends, former friends, I guess, said what you did with that, it was the equivalent of... um, if the uh, if the uh, uh, the um, sentence the uh, the sentence should have been uh, uh, the the you were uh, the punishment for a parking ticket was the equivalent of an execution you know that it's not you know you were being so tough about things that was ridiculous and he realized I was I was being arrogant and I was being I was you know using my power improperly. He seems like a totally decent guy. And every time he's totally decent, he says something in a sentence about, it's because I realize that the kind of person that God wants me to be is honest and kind and generous and takes care of the poor and looks after the needy and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. And it sounds good to me, and it sounds like he actually is living his life out of the Sermon on the Mount. So I I have to finish the book, but I think what could be wrong with that? Except that he is motivated and sustained by his faith in God, 
And I thought to myself, I don't have that. So I can't suddenly like conjure it up. It seems like a great thing to have if you're positive about it. But what if you're not positive about it? And besides, it's that, that itself is its own problematic thing because other people have other ideas. So anyway, I'll finish it, but I want to tell it to you about it. And all of that is in the service of trying to see, could I change my mind? Can I become... What would it take for me to have a Christopher Hitchens moment? or um, Or maybe I'd see... Maybe what it'll do, if I read this and this, is it will make me more clear. Uh, maybe it'll make me a more sophisticated understander of politics, and it'll be less as a like a combat sport, and more like something that people actually debated about, like in the days that they debated about stuff. I don't know. But, you know, even to think about, just one more thing, because then I want to ask you, what do you think about it? I was thinking about uh, Eric Erickson saying, well, these are the things that God requires of me, and I want those, my children to know that God requires that of them. So it's not every, ever a discussion of what if you're not operating in a framework of a God that holds that for you. I was thinking about what I am so conscious of is uh, we grew up, I grew up in a context of people using a God word in a certain way so that I do and it has a certain meaning for me different from what it has for Eric Erickson I think and my family was a, a relatively observant Jewish family and we went to synagogue and we kept dietary rules and we Sabbath rules and which I enjoyed all of and I liked my family and I liked uh, I liked liturgy and I still do Uh, but I didn't believe it in the same way that I don't believe that uh, the Buddha actually that Mara actually rode in on horseback with spears I think it's a metaphor and nor do I believe I saw a beautiful uh, frieze on some old statue of uh, the Buddha's mother giving birth with her women around her and the Buddha emerging from her underarm because that's what it says, that he was born out of her underarm. I don't actually believe that. I think it's a good story that she's standing there serenely and the Buddha's emerging. That'd be a great way to emerge. I don't know anybody else who's done that, but... But I don't. That doesn't. That doesn't change my estimate of the Buddha's thinking. So who knows? In my family, when uh, uh, someone sent me an email yesterday and said, "Can you?" As a, a friend who's a teacher of mine at a rabbinical seminary on the East Coast said, I'm teaching about death and dying rituals. Can you tell me death and dying rituals that Buddhists do? And I wrote back and I said, I really can't because there's a lot of Buddhisms and they each have their own rituals and I don't know them. I said, when, when I've been with dying friends who are Buddhists, if they want, I chant refuges and precepts for them, with them. 
if they can't speak or talk anymore, but they'd like to hear it, then I say them or I sing them if they want them while they're dying. I'm fine to do that. That's what I know. Anyway, I sent that off. I did not... And then I began to think, you know, I'm not a rabbi, so I don't bury people, but I have been at people's bedsides when they're dying who are Jews. And to them I always say, when you, and everybody knows that they're dying, I always say, when you come on the other side, be sure to put in a good word for us here. And I always say that in Yiddish because that's the way I learned it, and I only say it to Yiddish-speaking people. When you come on the other side, put in a good word for us here on our behalf. And I did it with my father, who was a really firm atheist. Um, and he appreciated that because he knew, and I knew, he, I knew that he didn't believe it, and he knew that I knew that. And it doesn't mean that I really think that. It's like the Buddha emerging from the underarm. It's just a traditional way of saying, I love you enough to say the uh, words that mean I love you from one tradition to the next. I've told my grandchildren, who are now marrying and getting ready to have children, I said, just prepare yourself. You see this little book of Psalms? Um, I have a miniature book of Psalms. It's about like this. I said, I'm going to wrap it in a red ribbon when I have a when you come close to having a baby. And I'm going to put it, this psalms with a red ribbon under the baby's mattress because it will keep off all the evil eyes. And I said, now I want you to know that I don't believe that. And you don't have to believe that either. But my parents' parents put under their pillow, under their mattress. My parents put it under mine. I put it under all my children's. I put it under my grandchildren's. I'm going to put it under my great-grandchildren's. It does not mean I believe it. It's a, it's a cultural way of saying, when you speak about this, you'll be able to say, my great-grandmother really loved me. She came with a psalm book that she was saving for 80-some years to put under my mattress. So there's a way of using those kinds of stories and metaphors in ways that are very useful don't have to believe it. But then, so that's enough. We have 10 minutes. I would like to hear if anybody here changed their mind about something like a belief system. Yeah. Amazing story. That's great. What else? Yeah, here you go. Um, I was raised in Texas in the country, um, and I was taught um, to—I was taught to be incredibly prejudiced, and 
the, uh, people of color were spoken of in very derogatory terms, mm -hmm. always. And that's, I just, I mean, I won't tell you the name that I knew for a black person, but you can guess. And that's the only name I knew, the only word I knew to describe them. But I saw hypocrisy because it was very sort of religious right. And I kept seeing hypocrisy even as a child, and I don't know how or why, but I just decided I had to get out of there. And then I went into the world. I came to San Francisco. And in San Francisco, there were all these people that were different colors, different cultures, different backgrounds, different everything. And to me, it was like wonderland. Mm -hmm. But they would, they would say things, you know, they would swear. And I'd go, oh, my God, don't let them be struck by lightning. Or I, I had all these feelings. And, you know, I learned about gay people. And I went, oh, my God, that can, you're joking. You're telling me it's a joke. And all these things. But then I met the people. And as I met the people, it just cleared up. Became these mm -hmm. are people. These are not only people, but they're people that are interesting and fascinating, and they're teaching me all these things. So I totally changed my mind. I told my politics are very much like yours. They're totally progressive and completely different than the way I grew up. Um, but it, it came about by just being there, being among the people, mm -hmm. and listening to what they had to say and what they had to teach me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I. I I think that's terrific. Who else? Thank you so much. That's Nancy. Okay, come back to Nancy. Um, I was a, um, I was a social work professor, and when I got my doctorate, I came out of Chicago and was originally from the East Coast. And the first academic job I got was at the University of Kansas. And um, Kansas, you know, is is a very red state. Um, Lawrence isn't necessarily very red, but what I didn't realize, because I'd never lived in a rural area or in small towns, uh, that my students were coming from these areas, and they were really, really conservative. They were very religious, conservative, and initially I had a really hard time. They didn't like me very much. I think they were a little afraid of me. But then I sort of decided that I would make an effort to try to understand them. And it, it was really a very powerful experience because I felt like I was able to change some of their ways of thinking just through being present to them and listening to them and trying to put the pieces together. So when I see the map of the country on election day and all these red states and all my friends and sisters are like, ah! mm -hmm. you know, I just see those sort of blue-eyed Kansan students mm -hmm. and I think of it quite differently. Mm -hmm. It's terrific to get disabused of a of a view. You're next. So I have kind of a different experience. Um, I went to grade school in a very small town in Iowa, and we had two teachers who were from another country, and they became good friends of our family. They went on family trips to South Dakota with us, and I was enthralled with this particular country, which I won't name right now, but they did family meals, those Foods became our family meals for holidays, which was bizarre in the Midwest, to be using another country's food. And then when I moved out here and started my internship as a pediatrician, I met a lot of people from that country. And it was a very hard group, stereotypically, to deal with. So I became very, very confused, having gone from being absolutely enthralled with this particular culture to 
almost averse to it and having a really, really difficult time with it. Um, and it really didn't help a whole lot to see one person at a time because, again, seeing them in a medical setting, you don't really get to know people in that. But it, it actually ended up giving me a huge regard for just how um, complex some of this is. So instead of, I, of course, first beat up on myself, like I'm really terrible, I'm really prejudiced, but it's an earned prejudice, you know, it's a justified prejudice because it's based on experience, but to just keep deepening deeper and deeper and deeper and really explore it more. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Over here, Nancy. Hi. Um, I've had a recent change uh, in regards to parenting. Um, my daughter's 17, senior, and I've been pretty strict all the time. And I've been frustrated with the fact that she um, isn't doing the homework I'd like her to. She's not achieving as much as I'd hope she is, blah, blah, blah. And uh, I, I was talking to a counselor about this, and they said, is she okay? Yeah. Is she healthy? Yes. And is she smart? Yes. And he said, let it go. She's a senior. You're not going to change her. And I just took that to heart. She, she's going to be fine. She's going to find her way. And this has been about three months. So I really, really took it to heart, and I stopped harping on her and asking her if her homework's done and blah, blah, blah. We get along fabulously right now. And I feel such a relief. I'm just not hovering and worrying about my daughter. I'm going to let her fly. Over here. After I had graduated from college and was trying to decide what I was going to do with my life in terms of career, um, the opportunity to become a computer programmer came up. And I was asking myself and my family, what should I do? And, and I decided that what I wanted from my career was two things. One was intellectual challenge, and the other was money. And so I embarked upon this career and became a computer programmer and then moved into management and management and higher and higher management and then got to a point where I had achieved the goal that I had set for myself. I became a vice president in the financial services industry that I was working in. And I was not quite 40 and retirement was 25 years away and I asked myself, can I do this do I want to do this for the rest of my life? So I stopped and reevaluated. I took a month off from work with no plans to do anything and just thought about what I wanted to do. And I decided that of the two goals that I had set my, myself in my career, intellectual challenge and money, one of them had to change. And I kept the intellectual challenge and was looking for something that would make a positive contribution to society. I came back to work. I told my boss, the president of the company, I've decided what I want to be when I grow up. And I, a year later, quit my job, went back to school, and became an elementary school teacher. Mm -hmm. See, I think we, first of all, thank you very much, everybody. And I think that we, we hear and appreciate mm, when somebody says something that we think, I wish I could have done that, or I wish I would do that, or like, yay. And, I just recently changed my mind or saw the results, some fruits of some of my practice. I went home for two weeks. Uh, I just got back. And there's some very difficult people in my family. And um, I used to be very judgmental, and I used to react and get angry. And um, 
This time I was able to sit back with compassion. And there were glimpses. It wasn't, you know, real steady. That they're suffering. They are suffering. And also they haven't learned the skills. They haven't learned loving kindness. They haven't learned wise speech. Um, When they're in pain, they react. All the things Mm -hmm. we're doing the practice to learn about. So I felt compassion. And I was able to sit back and not feed feed the situation. So I'm grateful for my practice. I'm really grateful for that as the last chair because... I think when my, one, the, one of the things I learned is that the minute I give up my, my aversive view, or it, 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 it morphs itself into compassion. So it not only stops being aversive, but it starts being connective. And you feel like you dodged a bullet. I could have had a little skirmish and more bad views about them or, or not. Listen, people, we have to go home. I love to be here. So um, may all beings be peaceful and happy. Yeah. What was the name of the movie you were talking about? Movie is Marshall. Marshall is the name of it. And it's so well done. The videography is good, the acting is good. It's in the Northgate, not my favorite theater, but it's okay. Hmm? Oh, I'm sorry, it's not in the Rafael, it's in the North Gate. Yeah, everybody, I'm sorry. It's not a very uh, aesthetically uplifting theater. But if you go in the afternoon, it's full of elderly people, so. <laughs> and I'll see you in um, three weeks. And I think that Tony's going to be here. Well, Tony was here. Was here. Oh, Heidi, next week, Tony was here. Tony is great, isn't he? Tony was here for the last two Yeah, he's great. Yeah, he's great. He's great. And Heidi is great. Good. Heidi will be here then. Terrific. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.